Hi, and welcome to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message, where we study scripture together verse by verse. Let's jump in now for this week's message. Our verses 10 and 11, it says, David says, God is my shield, saving those, those people. Who does he save? Those whose hearts are true and right. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the what? Wicked every day. What? Every day God is against the wicked? Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches us. He's not against sin. He's not against wickedness. He is against wicked people. The people. Those people that he so lovingly brought into existence and then sinned, now he is against them. He is angry with them because of their sin. But his anger is at the person not the sin. Some of you are already thinking ahead of where I'm going. Don't go too far. He tells us in the New Living Translation, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why are you making such a big issue out of this, Brent? I'm glad you asked. Because modern Christianity has made a doctrine of saying, of the saying, hate the sin and love the sinner. And don't go wacky on me. Stay calm, okay? Stay calm. We've made a big issue out of you got to hate the sin and love the sinner. This has become the mantra of modern Christianity and it suppresses the truth of the gospel. I have lots of spots in my notes where it says, go slow here. God's love, watch this, listen carefully. God's love stays his judgment and gives opportunity for unbelievers to repent and become believers. It is God's love that allows them to breathe another breath, exist another moment, to potentially hear the good news of Jesus, have their hearts transformed by the Holy Spirit, and glorify God. That is God's love. But he is a God of anger, and his anger is directed towards those who perpetually do evil and are wicked. Are you with me? But make no mistake, God opposes the wicked. His wrath, his anger is revealed not against sin, but against the sinner. That should make us all feel a little distressed. Does it? Some of you are looking at me like, why would I be distressed? Why is Paul so passionate about proclaiming the gospel message unapologetically, unashamedly? Why does he want to declare it to everybody that he meets? Why does he want to travel the known world and tell the good news? Because God's wrath towards unbelievers is coming. Are you with me? It's kind of like where we're standing on the sidewalk having a conversation with somebody in the, who's standing in the highway. And there's an 18-wheeler coming down the highway. We can see it. We can hear it. 
This person who we know, maybe casually from work, maybe from church, oh Lord, help us. Maybe it's a family member. This person's standing in the highway and we're standing there going, you might ought to be careful. I mean, there's a truck coming, but hey, how are your kids doing? Your kids doing good? Good. Did you go fishing this week? Weather, man, it's nice out, isn't it? It's good. Oh, you feel the ground rumble because there's an 18-wheeler coming. You hear it getting louder, and you're making small talk about the weather and fishing and sports and whatnot while this person that you know is about to get plowed under by an 18-wheeler. But we don't need to get all wound up about it. Paul does. Paul says, listen, unbelievers, the judgment of God is coming. God is a God of love and salvation, but he is a God of wrath against the wicked. And so I listen to me. There is salvation in the good news of Jesus. You've got to hear the good news and be saved from imminent tragedy. That's what's happening. That's what's happening in the text. Paul knows that the only way for people to be reconciled to God, to be pulled out of the way of his judgment and avoid his judgment is for them to believe, for them to believe in the good news so that they can know that the good news is the power of God for salvation. Salvation to God away from his rage, but into his holiness. He is God. He has the position of judgment. He has the position to punish sinners. So he gets to do that. He is coming and his anger is going to be poured out against the wicked. But Brent, we suppose that we're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin. Kind of, kind of. We're supposed, we've been told over and over, love the sinner and hate the sin, kind of. I just like the tension, so I'm just going to hang on to it for a second. Well, what are we supposed to do with those unbelievers? Are we supposed to be hateful to them? Are we supposed to treat them terrible? Are we supposed to just tell them, hey, God's coming after you, you're going to die, sucker. I kind of grew up at the tail end of the holiness movement. And it was kind of, man, you don't dress right. You don't comb your hair right. You are going to hell. It's terrible to be you. You're a sinner. You stink. We wouldn't let you come to our church if you begged. We don't want people like you in our Christian club. So are we supposed to be jerks? To the unbelievers because God's wrath is coming after the unbelievers. I like the way you guys are looking at me. We're supposed to love the sinner and hate the sin, kind of. We are in relationship with unbelievers to the degree that we desperately want them to know Jesus as their savior. A person is standing in the highway with the 18-wheeler coming. We have a relationship with people and God's wrath is coming. What are we going to talk about? What is the priority of our relationship? Well, that person is a, is a business relationship, so we don't really talk about the gospel very much. Oh, so their eternity and, and God pouring his wrath out on them is not really that important to you. That you have other priorities in your relationships other than the good news of Jesus Christ and sparing other people from eternal damnation. You've got bigger priorities than that, right? 
I like the way you're looking at me. We are in relationship with unbelievers to the degree that we desperately want them to know Jesus is their savior. The balance of all of this is our, is our faith, I have two questions, is our faith leading them to know Jesus in this relationship? Is my faith leading them to know about the good news of Jesus Christ? Or is their lack of faith compromising my obedience to God? Because we do this too. We do this thing where, well, we're going to do a little missionary work. So we're going to kind of go be edgy and maybe compromise our integrity a little bit. Maybe not, maybe not live in obedience to God, but we're going to live in the gray area. You know, it's that whole, we're going to become all things to all people so that we can reach a few, right? So we're going to be a little bit of a heathen so that we can make a good impression on those bad unbelievers, Right? Is your faith influencing that person or is that person's unbelief influencing your obedience to God? Our friendship with unbelievers can easily be a deterrent from a God-glorifying life. But Brent, Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the sinners and the heathens. Yeah, he's the son of God, so he wasn't really all that much influenced by it. Uh, sweetheart, I don't know where you're at, but... I get influenced sometimes. So I have to be careful who I hang out with, right? We begin with good intentions. We do. How many times have I seen people who are newly saved? They say, we're gonna go out and we're gonna win all these people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they stumble and they fall themselves. We begin with good intentions and then before you know it, you are more like them than they are like Christ. That is not evangelism. That's not missions. That's not reaching people. Paul was trying to help the church at Corinth with the exact same problem uh, in the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he, he says, uh, I'm going to read this carefully. He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. Again, varying degrees of how we team up. We have to be careful how we team up with those who are unbelievers. They have different priorities. I'm going to get there in a minute. How can righteousness... Paul writes, uh, he writes a whole bunch of questions. How can righteousness be partner with wickedness? How can we live kind of, let's live as close to the darkness as we can so that people will come to Jesus. That's not at all what the scripture says. He says, live completely committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be filled with him so that the light of Jesus shines through you. Then the world will see your light. He doesn't say live as close to the edge of Christianity as you can so that you can reach unsaved people. No, 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 no. That's not it at all. How can righteousness be a partner, be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? Do they ever work together for the salvation of people? No. How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? We often put this in the context of marriage. Don't be unequally yoked, right? Yoke, it's like two oxen. You put a big oxen with a little oxen and then the big oxen drags the little oxen around and that's a problem, that's no good. We don't want to be unequally yoked. What, what, how can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever and what, can, what union can there be between God's temple 
and idols. He says that because he's going somewhere with it. Think of God's temple, a place of worship, and idols that are graven images that are made out of wood and metal or stone. What, what is the relationship, the union between the creator of the heavens and the universe and a stick that's been carved into some sort of image? There's none. And then he says, for we, if Paul had been a Texan, he would have said, y'all, for y'all are the temple of the living God. What relationship does the temple of God have with idols? Well, none. You are the temple of God. And so we treat it as holy. We keep it away from wickedness. He goes on and he says, as God said, I will live in them and walk among them. Can you just take a second and absorb that? God promises I will live where? In them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, therefore what? Come out from among the unbelievers. Stop living like they do. Stop acting like they do. And separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch the filthy things. And I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Listen carefully, church. Our relationship with unbelievers is limited by the fact that they are philosophically opposed to our hope, to our life, and to our faith. They don't think the same way you do. They have totally different life priorities than you do. So whenever we partner with them, there's always going to be this tension of them pulling us back into their world and out of our world, the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Well, Brent, I don't think it affects me that much. Oh, sweetheart, don't be a fool. That's why God tells us, come out of the world. Come out, be separate from them. Now, I said it earlier, and I'll qualify it again. We will not be rude. We will not be unkind. We will be governed by the genuine love of Christ Jesus for all people. Remember in 1 Peter, he's, he starts off that if you have faith, add excellence. If you have excellence, add morality. And he goes on, and then he ends, and he says, and then the capstone is having genuine love for everyone. What does that mean? That you are so full of love that you'll go out there into the highway, and you'll grab that person by the shoulders and say, you have to know who Jesus is. Otherwise, the, his wrath is coming, and it's going to destroy you and probably your family and those that you love. Come and be saved. Come and know Jesus. I'm telling you because I love you. That's what our love of Christ for others compels us to do. Not, not just to hang out with them and become like them. No, no, no. Two very different things. We love them, but we will, we will have almost no common ground with those who willfully remain sinful and resistant to the good news of Jesus. I know I read that kind of awkwardly. We will have almost no common ground with those who willfully remain sinful and resistant to the good news of Jesus. I kind of have a common practice. I'm not saying we, should, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't make a doctrine of this, but we have lots of relationships, right? 
Every one of us has lots of relationships. Some of those relationships we pursue hard and we really want to be in a relationship with a person and that person just doesn't really want to be in a relationship with me. I know it's hard to believe, but it happens from time to time. And people tell me stories of, you know, I have a family member, I have an employee or an employer, I have somebody in the church that I want to be friends with, but they just are making it so difficult. And my advice, I think, is good biblical advice. You know, Jesus dies on the cross, he stretches his arms wide open and he says if you will believe you can come to me it's that simple my door is open all the time I want to be in relationship with you but if you don't want to be in relationship with me that's fine but here's the context of relationship with Brent you're probably going to talk about spiritual things often and if it makes you uncomfortable you're probably not going to like being my friend and if you don't want to be my friend because I'm going to heaven then I'm still going to say my door is wide open and I want you to come to heaven with me, but I'm not going to grab you by your hair and drag you. Does that make sense? At some point, it's on the other person to say, yes, I want to be in relationship with you and I, I admire your life and I even want to be in relationship with your God. That's how the light kind of works, okay? It doesn't, it doesn't work if we go out there and we grab people and we shake them and tell them, God's gonna strike you dead, you're gonna be a smudge on the concrete, you're gonna die and go to hell and just be hateful to them. I know there's a degree of truth in all of that. But we can't be mean to people. We have to love them. I love you. And in loving you, I'm telling you, tragedy is coming. And it's very real. And the fact that tragedy is coming motivates me to tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. I think that there's a balance there. To downplay or to suppress the reality of God's amazing grace for the believer or to downplay God's wrath for the unbeliever is inaccurate. And it leaves us, it has left us, because this is what we've done in, in uh, we kind of went through the, the holiness era where we were uh, very in the Old Testament, and then we came to the grace era of the church that we were only in the New Testament, and we're like, oh, Jesus died for our sins, and that's it, so I can act like any Yahoo I want, and we totally lost the judgment and the wrath facet of God. So now we've, we've swung the pendulum to this other side of there's no judgment of God, and we don't have to worry about it. It has made the church apathetic to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because we we're ignoring the train that's coming it's just we just live in grace and it's all good no it's not it's not that way I mean it's grace and it is all good but it's only for those who believe instead of being motivated to share the good news the power of God for salvation we are prone to make excuses for those who do not believe those who are objects of God's wrath. Did you hear what I said? We are prone to make excuses for those who do not believe. Those who are going to be objects or who presently are objects of God's wrath. He's not, by the way, he's not talking about coming judgment. We're going to read in the passage later on. It's present judgment. Presently, God's anger is against these people. So it's not, we're not looking eschatologically. We're talking about presently. 
We are prone to make excuses. Well, Brent, don't we have to be close to them so that they will know God? Don't we have to kind of live close to the edge of, of Christianity so that we can have an influence? Because we want to influence those lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I, I've made a joke here recently because I was raised in the era of pastors banging on the pulpit saying, if you don't share your faith, their blood is gonna be on your hands if they don't receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's this, oh no, we got to get out there and in the harvest field and we have to, you know, shake people and drag them into the kingdom of God. And what if we don't, Brent, what if we don't go out there? Those poor people, they don't know God. So I have to live a mediocre Christian life so that they will see Jesus. They have to know God and I have to take God to them. Verse 19 says, They know the truth about God. Oh, no, 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 no. I thought I had to go tell them the truth about God. Paul says, no, no. These people, he says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God. They know the truth. You compromising your holiness, you compromising your obedience to God, you compromising your Christ-likeness to reach them is not biblical. They've already been reached. Here is how. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Obvious. A little bit of revelation? No. A big revelation to them. Verse 20, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. They have no excuse. They know God. The fact that they are resistant because of their wickedness is between them and God. We bring the good news, this light, and we, we, we explain it to them, we proclaim it to them, we give it to them, but it's kind of like a flashlight shining a light on a wall. You don't have to take the flashlight and stick it on the wall, do you? Do you understand the illustration? You put a candle in the middle of a room and it gives light to the whole house, right? We don't have to take the candle and hold it in people's face. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and people hear it because faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. Yeah. God has revealed. You with me? God has, past tense, revealed himself to mankind. The heavens declare there is a God. God has made himself obvious to them. In creation, God's eternal power and his divine nature is revealed to who? All people. God's anger is not revealed to people who are clueless. They have no excuses. I like, like the way you're looking at me. 
God's anger. It's not fair for God's wrath to come against people who haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know that there is a God. God tells us in Romans chapter one, they have no excuses. We're gonna read further on and we're gonna see exactly what these people are doing and what they're thinking and it's gonna bring further clarity to it, okay? I'm just gonna leave the tension with you guys because I love it. God's anger is not revealed to people who are clueless. God is being fair. He's made himself known to these people and they said regardless of an incredible tree, regardless of the miracle of the human body, regardless of the sun and the moon and the stars and all that points to a God, I say there is no God. And these are the wicked people that God's wrath is coming towards. God's anger is revealed to people who know there is a God. God's anger is revealed to people who know there is a God. And God tells us everybody knows there is a God. It's revealed in his creation. Yet they remain wicked. They suppress the truth that is obvious in the earth and the sky. So, in short, before next week... In short, God reveals the gospel message, the good news, his power to reconcile mankind back to a holy relationship with himself, and God reveals his anger, his judgment on those who are sinful and wicked and willfully deny that there is a grace-filled God who sent his son to die on the cross in their place. It is a fearful thing to consider that some people will be, they actually are the subjects of God's anger today. Are you with me? It is a terrible thing to consider that there are people in your sphere of relationships that God opposes. We ask God to bless them, but they're living in wickedness and sinfulness, and so God's not going to bless them, not until they repent. Paul does not tell us this so that we can be angry or to be jerks or to take it upon ourselves to discipline those who reject God. It's not our place. However, it should be our motivation to passionately share the good news, good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with those who don't believe. God's anger toward the wickedness towards the wicked should serve as a motivation for you and I to introduce others to the good news so that they will have the opportunity to hear and to believe and to be reconciled to God. We were once sinners ourselves. We were once lost in the darkness of our own sinfulness. It is only because it is only because the grace of the Holy Spirit moved upon our hearts that you and I came to know Jesus as our Redeemer and our Savior. The good news of Jesus Christ is their only hope for salvation. But Brent, they live a pretty good life. They're a good person. I mean, they're involved in the community. They give back, da 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 da, da. They, don't, they don't know Jesus. They don't like it whenever I talk about Jesus. The good news of Jesus is their only hope for salvation. Only hope. Only hope. 
So we live unapologetically Christian because people desperately need to know the truth. We're not gonna hide our faith in an ever-living God. We're gonna share our faith. We're gonna let it broadcast like a bright light. Does that make sense? Let's stand together. I wanna pray with you. If you want someone to pray with you, our prayer team is gonna be standing here at the front of the platform and, um, and they're gonna be available to pray with you. But I wanna pray as we dismiss. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for, we thank you for the tension that you put in our lives of not only that we have your glory to live toward but we know that you are also a God of wrath and judgment and discipline. And Father, we do not want to fail you because we know who you are. We know that you are a God of judgment. So Lord, we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We consider the cross of Jesus and that Jesus died to wash away our sins and we would never reject that. We would embrace that. We embrace the fact that your son was dead for three days and on the third day rose from the grave demonstrating your power over death, your power to give life to the dead. And so, Father, today we are grateful. We do not want to stand in your judgment, but we want to stand completely in your spiritual blessings. Every spiritual blessing that is made available to us because of Jesus Christ Father, we are just humbled that you love us so much. We are grateful for the gospel message. Father, put it in our hearts to reach out and share the gospel with those that do not know you. Father, make us passionate about the good news of Jesus Christ for those who are still unbelievers. Help us to be effective in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, we want you to be glorified not only in our lives, but in the lives of all those who do not know you. Father, we love you and we thank you with all that we are. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Desert Heights Church Weekly Message. We meet on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. on Main Street in Farmington, New Mexico. If you'd like more information, please visit our website at desertheightschurch.com.